Welcome back to Venture Studio. This is the podcast where your host, Dave Lerner, entrepreneur, angel investor in 60 plus companies and director of entrepreneurship at Columbia University, interviews the angel investors and venture capitalists who make up New York City's entrepreneurial ecosystem. I am your producer, Kevin Weeks. Remember, all of our shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Venture Studio and let us know how we're doing. And now I'm going to send it up to Dave to give a quick intro of this week's episode with Jerry Newman. Dave? Hey, everyone. I'm delighted to have Jerry Newman on the show. He's someone I really admire. Uh, he's been a huge part of the tech ecosystem for 30 years, both as an engineer, as an executive, as a founder himself, as a venture capitalist, and for the last 10 years as an angel. He's one of the most consistently investing angels in New York City. He has a really unique approach. He does it pretty much full time, uh, and he's prolific as a writer about it on his blog, which is called Reaction Wheel. I highly recommend you check it out. Every few months, he puts out tremendous posts uh, about investing uh, about technology that are, you know, riveting and that light up the internet. Uh, so we delve into his philosophy, his approach. Uh, so if you're someone who's interested in venture capital or angel investing or thinking about getting into it one day, or you're in it already, this is a great podcast to listen to. Jerry really elucidates his points of view, his philosophy on it. He talks a lot about how to approach things, uh, if you're starting out as a system, um, just great practical advice. Yeah, we also cover a lot of themes in venture, such as the power law. We talk about um, the tick, the cyclical nature of technology, and then we also get into to the teaching of entrepreneurship. Where Jerry and I both teach entrepreneurship at Columbia University, so we kind of exchange notes. And uh, mainly, I do a lot of learning from him. And we also talk about. New York City and what's going on in the city's tech ecosystem and how we can continue to be a force in that area. Just a tremendous uh, tour de force by Jerry. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's head on up to the office. In the office, baby. really been looking forward to this. Great to have you on. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm honored. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, a long time coming up. All right. So you know what I thought? Let's just dive in into your current activities because you're one of the few angels in New York City that's consistently been investing his own money over 10 plus years. I mean, it's really 20 if you count all your VC days, which we'll get into. But what does your latest activity look like? How many deals a year you've been doing? sector. Just give us a sense of what's, uh, what's going on in your world. So I try to do four or five deals a year. Um, I'm really early stage. You know, it's, I, I joke that I invest when it's two people and a dog. Um, I want to be there. I want to be the first money in if possible. Sometimes there's a little friends and family money. Um, but it, it's early enough that I can actually help. And, and, and I feel like if I'm not helping, then I'm not actually earning the money. Um, even though, you know, I mean, the help I do is not nearly commensurate with what the founders are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so four or five a year is pretty much all I can do and still have time to help. Um, so, you know, aside from the last year in which I, I tried to implement a thesis that just didn't work out and I, I didn't get four done, um, you know, it's that's, that's been my activity. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, recent companies, uh, Bonsai.ai, uh, it's a deep learning platform and language. Um, they just announced their uh, beta product at 
uh, I guess TechCrunch Disrupt, or no, no, sorry, it was the O'Reilly Conference last week, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it, which is pretty exciting. Um, it allows sort of not your average person, but your average programmer to create deep learning networks, um, and, you know, actually implement them into uh, working products. So um, it could be a big advance forward for the deep learning community, which uh, I'm excited about. Um, uh, PCBNG is a company here in New York. Um, they're out in Brooklyn. Uh, they let you prototype printed circuit boards. So they will create and populate printed circuit boards in quantities as low as one. Um, you know, anybody who's who's done this knows that if you're not ordering a couple thousand, it's not cost effective, right? Um, but they actually have implemented a system where you can order one, you can order ten uh, at, at a cost effective price uh, with quick turnaround. Um, Strong DM, another company that was started here in New York, uh, although they're uh, bi-coastal, um, is doing uh, database authentication. Um, that's a, a founder, uh, Liz Allman, who I've, I've backed before. Um, OneDrop, another founder I've backed before, um, is doing a diabetes management system on... Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I've heard of OneDrop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, that's Jeff Dotches, who started Razorfish back in the 90s, and I... When I back in the '90s, I backed Razorfish, um, which was a, a big win for the fund, and uh, I've backed him again. Um, and he's 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 just an amazing entrepreneur. And they've, uh, they've raised a fair amount of money, if if I'm not mistaken, in in, in the last couple of years. Yes, they have. Yeah. So that one actually, that one I invested. Gosh, that must have been two years ago at the seed round. Um, and they they went out and raised a bunch of money um, from RRE among others, and uh, Zipdrug also. Um, Another fact, I have, actually, no, I haven't backed him before. He was an employee at my startup about 13 years ago. He was our star salesperson, Stu Libby. Yes, um, I've met him. That, that, that's a, we've, we've actually um, talked about his, his startup on this show before because um, a, uh, Julian Cunahan from Red Sea Ventures also joined the round, and he's a logistics maven, and he was raving about uh, the founder of ZipDrug. Really cool idea. Yeah, you know, not the kind of company I would normally invest in, um, but Stu, it, you know, he's just one of those people where you'd be an idiot to bet against him. Um, he's he's amazing. And and just for everyone listening, this is this is indeed um, <laughs> a logistics play. It's um, moving moving drugs around the city, quite literally. Um, you know, <laughs> prescription drugs, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think it's. I, you know, I um, I tend not to invest in delivery companies, um, and we could talk about why later on. But you know, in this case, I feel like he identified a real problem, which is people will get a prescription from their doctors, and and then they not follow up. Right? They'll, you know, there's a huge percentage of people who the doctor will prescribe something after a, an office visit, and they'll just never pick the prescription up, uh, and that's it's a, a problem that the doctors feel. Uh, so he, he's identified a real problem um, in the market that he can address by going to the doctors and saying, hey, you know, we can, we can help you with this. We can help you make sure that your patients are actually doing what, they, what you asked them to do and what they said they were going to do, um, but just didn't do because they didn't have time or whatever. So um, I, I feel like in this case, it's a real problem that he's uh, addressing. Okay, I didn't know you were in ZipDrug. And so, you know, you're doing four or five a year uh, here in New York mainly. What are you up to? Are you 40-plus companies by now? So I've done 42 in the past eight years, um, and it's I don't actually have 42 out there uh, right now. Um, a few of them have 
many, several of them have exited. Uh, a few have uh, just didn't make it. Um, I think there's probably 20 that I'm actively involved with right at the moment. Uh, some you, of them. You'll, you'll take board seats, right? Occasionally, if I'm not mistaken. I will. Um, yeah, you know, it's actually I have some rules of thumb. I think, like most of us, uh, most early stage investors were optimists, right? So, a founder comes in and pitches you an idea, and my instant reaction is almost always, "Wow, that's a great idea!" Um, pretty much 100 percent of the time, right? I mean, it's they're they're all good ideas. Um, but I know they can't all be good ideas, and I know I can't invest in all of them. And I have some filters, some rules of thumb to help me sort out uh, the ones that I will eventually invest in from everything else. Um, and one of them is, is the does the founder want a board of directors? Uh, this is, you know, I, I've uh, some of your previous uh, investors that have come on your show have talked about, oh, you know, we don't insist on having a board of directors and whatnot. And I think that's founder friendly of them, but I, I also think it's. A warning sign if if the founder doesn't want the help. Um, so it's uh, if they don't want, if they're not going to have a board of directors, I won't invest. Um, and, and it's it's just over the years I've I've seen that the people who don't have um, somebody it doesn't even have to be a board of directors, but somebody who's not in the company that they have to talk to and tell them what they did every month, you know, and like report on progress. Um, it's it's easy to get lost in the weeds, you know. Uh, I mean, at, at my startup, it was easy to kind of go off and be like, okay, we're going to work on this product for the next two months and fix all these bugs. And then at the end of two months, you realize, wow, that the product itself isn't really what the customers want. It's um, you know because you didn't have somebody from the outside saying, wait, wait, let's look at the bigger picture. Um, and that, that's just what happens when your your head's down working. So I will sit on boards. It's not I don't. Um, it's not that I want to sit on boards exactly. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> it, it's a lot of work, and you don't get yeah. paid extra. And um, right. you, you do learn something. And, and you know, the ones that I sit on, I I, I feel like uh, they help me learn what's going on, right? And that's it's important to if you're going to continue investing that you keep learning. Um, but I do say, look, you have to have some somebody on the board. And in a lot of cases, if you know, if the other investors are you know, either angel investors who have full-time jobs or they're seed stage um, venture capitalists where this is a really early deal for them and it's more of a experiment. Um, like, let's put a little bit of money in and see what happens. And if it goes well, then we'll put more money in. Um, those people either can't sit on the board or don't really want to because they don't have the time. Um, and, and then I'll, I'll sit on a board. And now you, you start typically in the seed and how usual is it for people to say, "Yeah, okay, I'll I'll do a board at the seed level," or do a lot? Because a lot of people want to wait till Series A. Yes, I, I guess so. I you know again, it's if if that's the case, I, I actually think that this. So you know, I, I so yeah, I invest at what I guess what I would call the seed, or I would have called the seed a few years ago. I don't know what you call it these days the pre pre seed, or, um, but it's uh, you, so the the typical objection to having a board is. It's going to take up too much time. Um, I don't want to spend a week out of every month preparing a board deck, or you know, this is just your typical, you know, venture investor control thing, right? You just you want to come in and tell me what to do, and and neither is true. I, you know, what so what I said. Um, so Jonathan Mendez at Yieldbot, he said, look, I I, don't, I have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do here. I'm not going to sit down and prepare a board deck. Um, I just you know, it's the board is me and you, and it's just I'm not going to spend my time doing that. Um, I said, yeah, I really don't want you to. I remember at my startup, the board meeting decks, you know, we spent a lot of time on them because we wanted the investors to be impressed. Uh, and it was a waste of time, 
really. It was time that we weren't spending working. So I said, look, you need to have a dashboard for yourself, right? So here's one piece of paper that you're, you tell me what's on it that you're going to look at every month and see how you're doing. Uh, and then let's just go through that. So pull out that one piece of paper every month and we'll look at it and we'll look at what it looked like last month and we'll just talk about what's happening. Um, and I think he found that helpful. Um, yeah, pretty sure he found it helpful. I hope you found it helpful. I guess I should ask him. <laughs> um, right. We're still friends. So uh, <laughs> even now that I'm off the board, you know, he's up to his, uh, you know, much further along. And uh, I usually leave the board by the time of the Series B um, because I, uh, the other board, now you'll have other people on the board and um, they could do the work that I was doing. So, um, and the other, the other yeah, objection the other is, mm-hmm. is, you know, so you're, this is a control thing and it's not, you know, it's like, I, I say, look, it can be you your dog and me on the board and your dog's always going to vote with you. Right. So it's not a control thing. I don't care about control. Um, but I just care about you actually coming back and every month saying, here's what's happening. Um, and having to, you know, defend it. Um, it's easy to send out the investor updates every week and, uh, and with, and oftentimes when things aren't going well, the investor update is full of sort of the, the vanity metrics, right? Um, here's how many people showed up at our website. Um, Stuff that's not really addressing the whether the product is moving forward or not. You know, it, it occurs to me, again, I'm reminded, you do this really full-time or close to full-time, and you will put in the effort and the time to do this, but it's kind of like a, a lightweight board. It's not what people typically think. It's kind of like commensurate with the early stage of a company, the seed, the seed round, and you're there. You don't want the control. You just want them to have that discipline of going through the, the key metrics, the dashboard every month and to help them through it. But again, that doesn't happen too often. This is something that you, that you do. And, and I guess after you've done it a while and you have a good reputation, founders are less intimidated, so to speak, and will say, okay, that sounds, that sounds reasonable. I think so. You know, so you know, I, I really, I don't, I, I don't think that the job of a venture investor is to make good picks. Um, that's, you know, I don't believe that as a venture investor, you can actually make a living saying, oh, I'm a good picker. I can, I can pick the companies that are going to be the ones that are going to succeed. I just don't think that's true. Um, so I, I think a, most of the value created is after the company started, after you invest. Um, and you can either help do that or just sit back and let other people do it. Um, and, I, you know, I'd prefer to help um, you know, in, in whatever ways I can. So that, that's what I do. And I understand when I put together a syndicate for a company that a lot of the people are just putting money in and, and oftentimes they'll put money in if I'm pulling the syndicate together because they, they think what I'm, I'm doing the job, right? So it's fine. And I'm, I'm fine with that. I, I can't write a big enough check to fund the whole company by myself. Uh, I need the syndicate. Um, and I'm grateful to have people investing in companies that I've, uh, identified to them. Uh, but somebody has to do the work. I mean, if somebody else wants to do the work, that's great. Uh, I'd be happy to sit back myself, but, um, in most cases, nobody else really can. So um, I'm happy to do it. Um, and, you know, I had to find it, you know, early on where I, when I didn't have this rule in place, um, after about six months, founders would often call me and say, like, hey, you know, would you, would you like to come sit on the board? Um, <laughs> because they, they realize, like, you know, what, I just I need somebody to talk to who's not somebody who works for me, um, you know, and, and somebody who's has an interest in the success of this company. Um, and I just think that's, everybody needs that, right? You know, the image of a board, there's been so much written about it, 
and and so there's this dynamic where so many founders are intimidated by a board. You know this, and they 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 talk about that that you know who's going to have control and. I'm going to bring this person on and that, but the VCs are going to want to do this. What you're talking about is really, it, it, you know, it has the word board associated with it, but it's, it's, it's a sounding board. It's not, it, it's not burdened by that sense of control, et cetera, that, that kicks in in later rounds, so to speak. Is that a fair characterization? It is fair. And it's actually, so you know, the, the role of a board um, in a later stage company is monitoring um, you know, this, they are essentially the CEO's boss, right? So they're keeping track of what he does, um, making sure he's doing his job, making sure the people who work for him are happy. Uh, and that's what they do, right? They, they monitor. Um, they, they, and the, the reason venture capital contracts have board seats in them is so the venture capitalists have it, the right to monitor what's happening in the company. Um, and, and I think that's necessary at a later stage. Um, and, and I've found myself in some cases... Uh, doing the job that I do at the early stage in a later stage company, and it's not really the right job. Just you know, I mean, I should be doing more monitoring as opposed to more cheerleading. Um, but in the early stage, you know, what is there to monitor? It's not like you know, you're not going through the P and L and saying, "Hey, well, what's this item in other expenses?" Um, that's it's just there is no P and L, right? It's, there's a burn rate, uh, so it's a completely different job. And 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 I think as an early stage investor. Um, your your job is to create optionality. Um, so you know that the company that you're investing in isn't successful yet. Um, it, the probability is you have no idea whether or not it will be successful. And, and the thing that you want to do is create enough space for them um, to experiment and find the right product, the right market, um, so that they can start to grow quickly and raise more money. Uh, and, and, and that doing that means a lot more... Um, listening a lot more, um, helping them work through problems, um, you know, uh, and, and also just being the, uh, I had one founder who every time the phone would ring at, at midnight, um, my partner Noel would say, Oh, it's, it's so-and-so <laughs> it's, um, cause he'd always call me like late at night when he was lying awake and couldn't, you know, working through a problem. And, and so, yeah, that's all right. That's, that's the job, right? The, the question, I must ask you this, the question presents itself. Uh, how did you get like this? And I think a lot of it must have to do with your, your background in this. Um, you were investing uh, as a, a VC in the early days of the of the internet um, in Omnicom's VC arm. I mean, this was 1997, late 90s that you got into VC. Tell tell us the story. How, how did yeah. You- so it was. Uh, I'm sort of. It was completely accidental. Um, you know, I was at Prodigy, the uh, early um, competitor to AOL, um, back before the internet was a before the web was something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was an early internet access platform, uh, but it had its own client. It's you know, it's it was a, a walled garden, and um, and I, I was their uh, director of finance. Um, so it, I you know, I was an engineer. I kicked around for a couple of years. Ended up uh, at Prodigy when I wanted to get back into the industry. Um, and uh, Omnicom was looking for somebody to help them build an internet division, um, and they wanted somebody who understood finance uh, because it's a you know Omnicom was essentially or at the time was um, essentially a merchant bank, uh, and somebody who understood the internet. Um, and I was the only person in New York who who knew. So, um, so they, they hired me, and the idea was to go out and to buy companies. They said, you know, here's a great company that our clients would. You know, love their product. Let's buy it and bring it under the Omnicom umbrella. 
Um, and we quickly found, it was actually with Jeff Dotchis uh, at Razorfish, we, wa- we walked in and said, right, you know, we're, we'd love to buy your company and make a part of Omnicom. And uh, at the time, they were five people um, and two dogs. And he said, great, I'll, I'll sell it to you for $40 million. Uh, and, uh, you know, Omnicom's model is not to spend $40 million for five people. They, they try to buy things based on multiples of earnings. So I said, well, gosh, $40 million, that doesn't make a lot of sense for our model. And also, if I wrote you a check for $40 million, all five of you would probably quit tomorrow, right? Because you're now pretty wealthy. Um, and Jeff said, you know, this company is going to be worth $40 million a year from now. So why would I sell it to you for less? And I went back, you know, and I said, you know, that's true, right? Um, so instead, we offered to buy 40% for a much smaller amount of money, but money into the company, so essentially make a venture investment. Um, and he said, all right, I would do that as long as, you know, I have, we have the strategic relationship where, you know, I can use you as my, uh, you know, use your name in pitching clients, you'll help me grow the company, um, you know, a bunch of other things. And so, yeah, all right, that, that's easy for us to do. Um, and that company grew very quickly. And, and the, the company grew quickly, and about a year and a half later, they went public, and they were at one point worth $3 billion. Um, and so Omnicom, you know, the CEO came back and said, hey, that worked out. That worked out pretty well. Um, you, tell you what, you can do whatever you want. Uh, um, as soon as you screw up, I'm going to fire you. But you can do whatever you want until then. And that's – his method was, you, you know, he was, he was a great boss. It was, um, you know, give him enough rope and right. see what they do with it. Um, so, uh, which was awesome until around, you know, 2001. So we invested in, um, 26 companies, uh, a lot of the early internet pioneers in New York. Um, and, uh, and we made a lot of money for Omnicom mainly due to the fact that it was the nineties and it was actually, you know, um, I, I like to think that I did better than throwing darts. Um, but if you had been throwing darts, you would have made a lot of money too. Um, so it was, uh. That's, that's how I ended up investing. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and, uh, you know, who I did, Jerry, who did back then? I mean, it was just the beginning. Well, there were, I mean, I remember like sitting down with, uh, the guys at Flatiron Partners, right. You know, Fred Wilson's first VC firm. Yeah. Um, they knew what they were doing. <laughs> um, okay. you know, it's, okay. you know, there were, and I, I, I think it was, um, it was great in a way because I knew I had no idea what I was doing and I knew that there was nobody at Omnicom who knew how to do this. Um, so I had to go out and meet people in the industry and say, all right, you know, and, and try to get them to explain to me, like, why they did things. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember sitting down with Jerry Colonna around an investment he made. And I said, I, I don't understand why you made that investment. That company, like, it, you know, like, I don't, the product's not really like this. It's blah, 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 blah. And, and Jerry said, well, I made the investment because I think we're going to make money on it. I was, <laughs> Oh, oh, I see. Okay, <laughs> that's that makes sense, right? I mean, that, that's the job. All right, okay. um, you know. So it was. Um, so I learned a lot, uh, and uh, of course, then in, you know the bubble popped, and Omnicom decided that venture investing was not such a great thing after all, um, and maybe not what they wanted inside of their company because it didn't fit their model. Um, so uh, ended up buying the portfolio from them um, with somebody else's money, uh, running it for a while, but. I didn't have enough money to make more investments, um, so I just ran the existing portfolio, and, uh, and it worked out pretty well. Um, you know, it, it provided the money to, for me to keep investing. Um, uh, but somewhere in there, I, I uh, wasn't really that busy running this. You know, it was essentially a half-time job running a portfolio that wasn't making investments. Um, 
and started a company with a couple of friends and uh, became an entrepreneur. Um, tell so us about uh, that. that was called Root Markets. Tell us a little about that. Yeah, so Root started out um, as I was partnered with this guy who's an amazing entrepreneur, Seth Goldstein, um, who I'd known for years just from being around New York. Uh, and we hashed out ideas over the course of several months. You know, I had ideas, he had ideas. Uh, we bounced them off against each other. And, you know, in the end, we wanted to build a place where people could protect their personal data and then sell it if they wanted to. So the idea was other people are collecting your data on the internet and making money from it, but it's your data. Why shouldn't you own it? Why shouldn't you make money from it yourself if you want to? Um, and uh, you know, in exploring that idea, uh, we found that part of the problem was there was no way to actually sell your data if you wanted to sell it to make money from it. So the promise, like, well, here, install this client on your browser so that it, it collects and protects your data, uh, and then we'll provide you with a marketplace to sell it so you can monetize it. Uh, there, there was no marketplace. So we built this marketplace to allow you to monetize your own data. Um, and you know, the interesting thing about it was that it was a precursor to the ad tech marketplaces that came you know, uh, a couple of years later. Um, so we, because the data you would be selling would essentially be to the people who were buying ads um, or selling leads or... Um, so this was uh, this was the idea, and it was a big idea. Um, you know, we we pitched it as you know we're going to be bigger than Google, and we ended up raising almost fifteen million dollars. And you know, for people like Fred Wilson and and Josh Koppelman, and and then we lost it all. Um, and uh, you know, it was the the marketplaces we were our first marketplace that we were selling into was the mortgage marketplace, which was obviously huge in the mid two thousands, um, and the the easiest place to sell. Um, so, you know, here's your data. We can help you get a, a deal on a mortgage because we know more about you than the mortgage company. Um, and then, of course, the market mar mortgage market disappeared and um, we no longer had any revenue. So <laughs> that was a... Uh, right. <laughs> Hard to predict that happening. Uh, but yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was... I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Certainly, you know, in hindsight, it's, it's not so hard to predict. But, um, you know, when you're in the moment, it's hard. Um, so uh, it was, and it was great. I mean, I think it was the experience of being an entrepreneur made me a completely different investor. You know? So when I was at Omnicom, it was uh, I was a smart young kid, right? And I would go into companies with people who were running their companies 168 hours a week and say, "Hey, why don't you do this? You should do this differently," uh, which is interesting, right? Because why, how would I know? <laughs> um, and then after starting my own company and, and realizing what happens day to day and how decisions are made and the difficulty of making decisions and managing people and having investors call me um, and say, you should do this different. And thinking, you know, it's not a bad idea. You know, you're a smart guy and you've thought of a good thing. And But the fact that I'm doing this, you know, 168 hours a week means that we thought of that idea already and we tested it and we went, you know, we tested 25 different variants of it and none of them worked. And so we've discarded it. And um, you know, the idea that you can come in and tell me things that I haven't thought of already or somebody in my company hasn't thought of already, you know, it's a little arrogant. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I, I try as an investor now not to do that. Um, I, I understand that, you know, I, I think I understand investing pretty well, but whatever business I'm investing in, if the people who are running the business don't understand that business, you know, several orders of magnitude better than I do, then I shouldn't have invested with them, right? I mean, that's, uh, I think that's just true. Um, 
you, you can't, as an investor, spend a couple hours a month with a company and give them that much value in terms of product uh, knowledge or marketing knowledge or technical knowledge. You, know, you can help them with interfacing with the outside world because that's, you know, the investors are in the outside world, right? And they, uh, as an investor, you have a, a network of, of a network that provides uh, information flow, right? So that, that could be helpful. Um, but the idea that you're actually going to help them operationally is, you know, either you're going to spend a lot more time there, um, you know, at least a week a month, uh, or you're just not going to be able to help them operationally. So I think it's, um, sorry, I've gone off topic. No, no, that, that, original that, question no, was, but that, that, listen, I mean, you've stuck with that and it's under, it underlies. Now I, I, I see how it all kind of fits together. It underlies a lot of your philosophy as an investor, not, not only giving you the empathy and the, the, uh, the depth of having gone through it yourself, but you, you have these kind of epic posts that you write every few months and they kind of blow up the venture capital, uh, Twitter and internet for, for a few months at a time. Posts like betting on the ponies, the power law post, the, the VC in the eighties. Those are all great. You, you often will talk about your approach, your philosophy. You'll kind of share insights with other investors who might be reading, um, and in, in the post betting the ponies, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, in horse racing, everyone has a system of some kind, right? <laughs> right. And then, uh, you, you extrapolate to, to being an investor and what quote, having a system can mean. One, if you don't mind, elaborate a little on, on that and what you're recommending about the, the domain expertise and all that. Thanks. Um, yeah, I, I consider myself an awful writer. I, uh, you should see these, and the posts are like 20 pages long, and, and you should see them before I, I take two-thirds of it out. Um, it's the, you know, the Mark Twain thing. If I, if I had the time, it would have been shorter. Um, right. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's, um, what, what ends up happening, um, you know, I think I have this sort of typical systems thinker problem that everything's interconnected in my head, and uh, you want to write about something, and you have to pull a thread out um, and write about it. Um, and then, you know, you're worried because it doesn't actually explicate all the connections to everything else on earth. Um, so you're like, oh wait, this isn't complete because it, you know, um, uh, and I, I have to sort of edit that down. And I think the, the process is good for me and that's why I write them because I, it makes me think about how I'm thinking, um, and crystallize some of the things that are in my head. Um, it's, uh, it's, although it's extraordinarily painful for me to write. So that's, which is why I probably don't write that often. Um. But, uh, you know, the, the, the impetus behind that post, so the, the, po- the post is about um, people, it, it's about betting systems, right? So in, in some sense, venture investing is a bet. You're, you're, you know, you're speculating, right? It's, it's not investing at all. You're not saying, uh, I'm taking a speci- specific amount of risk and I should on average get a specific amount of return. That's, that's not what it is. You're, you're saying, you know what, this company has a one in 10 chance, maybe, of being huge, Um and it's not much better than that. It's, uh, you know, I, I, um, I think, you know, venture investing should make you humble, right? It's, it's a difficult thing to do. Um, and in the end, even when you're right, you, uh, you wonder, wow, why am I right? <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. when you're wrong, you're like, wow, why was I wrong? Uh, but even when you're right, you you wonder why you were right. And so it's, you know, I think more than anything, um, you know, the, the fact that you have a very specific objective measure of how well you did at the end, um, you you have to be humble because that the, the measure of how well you did probably sucks, right? I mean, I think 
it's uh you know it's like my my when my son was um playing baseball um and when he started he would get really upset that he didn't get a hit every time at bat and i'd have to explain to him say look you know nobody gets a hit every time at bat like let, let, let's go look at them you know the, let's go look at the people in the Hall of Fame, right? I mean, if you're batting 300, you know, you're doing pretty well. Um, and I think in venture, actually, if you were batting 300, you'd be like, you'd be in the Hall of Fame, right? I mean, um, actually, you'd be like probably a, a freak of nature. Uh, so, you know, there, there's a certain amount, of, and that's, I think, you know, baseball players are generally pretty humble when you see them talk, right, among pro athletes. And I think venture investors should probably learn that same lesson. Like, you need to be a little humble about about what you do and, and, and the results you have. And, uh, you know, there's definitely this sort of post hoc narrative where um, if you ask a venture investor about an investment they made that was successful, they'll tell you how their thought process you know, led to this inevitable good result um, because they're geniuses, right? Um, you know, whereas if you ask them at the beginning, um, you know, they're kind of, I, I, a friend of mine invested in Uber at the very beginning and he showed it to me and I didn't invest. And, he obviously making a lot of money on it, and I'm not. Um, but you know, at the beginning, when he, I remember when he he said he he's like, yeah, I'm not so sure. You know, look, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. I like the team. You know, the idea is a little weird. Um, you know, who really like you need a phone to get a black car? I mean, you could do. You know, it's just not that big a market. I don't know. Um, of course, now you know, uh, he's like, well, of course, it's going to revolutionize the transportation industry, right? So, right. the sort of post hoc narrative is always amusing to you know when you when you were there at the beginning. Um, but you have to give credit to the fact that you just don't know at the beginning. So the point of the post, um, you know, there's these betting systems in horse racing where um, the information is so scarce and anything can happen on any given day. And people have these spreadsheets where they've taken all the stuff out of well, what then was the daily racing form. I, I don't really know now. Um, and built this spreadsheet where they're like, oh, well, you know, so-and-so has, you know, they, they have better odds of winning than the, the odds that are up on the board. Um, and it was... As somebody who's sort of of a quantitative bent, it was kind of amusing to look at because, you know, these simple models couldn't possibly be right, um, or not so they couldn't be right. They they couldn't be doing better than the wisdom of the crowd, right? Um, which is which is how betting works in a race uh, at a race course. Um, you know, it's paramutual. Um, so, the idea that you can pick the horses is is a little funny and so I, I use that as as the metaphor to get into people who think they can pick winners in venture capital um you know where they, they have a system that says well if you have these different factors then you can pick winners um you'll, you'll pick the companies that are going to do well and and you see this you know you, you you see this occasionally like systematized um but you will almost always find it among actual investors who will say well here are the factors you need to have a good company um and, you know, when you think about that a little harder, that's, uh, it's impossible, right? It's impossible that that system could exist. Um, and it's because if, if you had a system by which you could pick winners in venture capital, then you'd also have a system by which you could create winners, right? You could say, well, I'm going I'm to have a computer run through 10 billion possible ideas and pick out the 100 that will be, you know, surefire winners, uh, which would mean that you would have a perpetual money machine, right? So, um if there were, and I think people who invest in the public markets professionally know this, that if you have a system by which you can pick winners, um, by which you can always make money, the system itself drives out the money, right? It's, um, so I think that's generally true of almost any human endeavor. Um, if you have a strategy which always works, then that strategy ends up eating itself. Um, so the, the idea that you can pick winners is... is uh, 
it's just wrong. Um, and I think you can, you know, which is not to say that, you know, of the comp- of the especially the stuff, the, the plans that are sent to me cold and just emailed to me because somebody found my email address. Um, I'd say about half of them really aren't going to work. Um, and there's there are ideas that just aren't going to work. Um, but of the ten percent where you're like, okay, this could work. You know, the whether or not it will work is is uncertain. Um, so that was the main, the, the reason I wrote the post. Um, the sort of underlying thing that, that behind a lot of the stuff I write is is the idea that, that venture capital is actually pretty hard, right? It's um, uh, it's an easy thing for people. You know, I, I have a friend who, smart guy, he, he works, he was one of the um, top people at a huge hedge fund. Um, he's worth truckloads of money, I'm sure. Um, and every time he gets bored, he calls me up and he's like, hey, I've got this, uh, I'm going to venture invest in this company. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he does uh, kind of weird asset-backed lending um, at the hedge fund. And uh, I, so one day I called him up. I said, hey, I'm going to lend money to these guys who are buying this uh, golf course that's going out of business in California. And uh, he said, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Look, there's a ton of stuff you need to know if you're going to do something like that. Like, that's really, you know, this is what I do, and that's really hard. And there's all these things you don't know. Like, right. All right. So let's talk about your venture investment again. Um, you know, from right. the outside, it looks so easy, right? It's, yeah. it's um, and, and it's fine if you want to, like, you know, speculate with a bit of money because you're just, you're bored. That's one thing. But um, to actually make money doing it's hard. And, and I think it's, uh, anybody can write a check, right? If people think they're pickers. All right. I, I found this company that's clearly going to be successful. I'm going to write them a check. Um, but you know, like I like to say that the hard part's not writing the check, the hard part's getting a bigger check back at the end. Um, and how do you do that? So the, you know, a lot of my writing is about, it's not as easy as it looks. Um, and that's not to like self-aggrandize. It's, no. it's like any profession, right? Like somebody walks up and be like, Hey, you know, I, I watched, uh, you know, this show on TV and now I'm going to do a heart surgery. Well, you know, it's actually harder than it looks on TV, you know, although it actually looks pretty hard on TV too. Um, but nobody, you know, you, you don't, if, if you need a lawyer, you hire a lawyer. If you need a doctor, you hire a, law, a doctor. And they, um, those are people who, if you need a CFO, you hire somebody who's been, you know, a finance guy for 20 years. You know, in that post, you, you took a, another very humble step. You, you did say that if, you know, you're getting into angel investing or you're trying to figure out where you fit into this ecosystem, I, I recall that you were saying, you know, choose an area that you you have some knowledge of the customer base and the problems and start f- focusing on, a, on an area. I think you, you likened it to a flock, you know, of birds. Um, this famous guy from Sequoia said, you know, I, I look at a flock and I pick out a bird from that flock. You know, he, yeah. he was like extolling his, his talents as, as a picker. And you're saying, no, guys, pick a flock, <laughs> right? Understand it, have some domain expertise in it. Learn, learn who the cast of characters are, etc. Is that? Am I getting that kind of right? Or? Yeah. So it was Michael Moritz, you know, um, uh, from Sequoia, who said that. You know, I, I don't look for a flock of birds. I look for individual birds that you know. I, I, I never found the exact quote um, because I, I did. I try to cite the stuff I use in my posts, but I couldn't find the original. Um, but he looks for you know individual birds that are special. Um, and, and you know what, I mean, uh, the fact that I say that you can't have a process doesn't, you know, 
Two Sigma has a process in the public markets that has made them a lot of money. And you could have a process, and it, it, you can, uh, as long as you don't let everybody else know what your process is, right? Um, and maybe, maybe Sequoia has a process. I don't know. Um, but if you're an angel investor coming in from the outside, you almost certainly don't have a process. Like, you don't have a, pro- a surefire process. Um, and, you, and you can't compete with Sequoia, and you shouldn't try to do what Sequoia says they do, because um, if they were really telling you how they made so much money, then everybody would be doing it, and there wouldn't be anybody to be made, right? It's um, it's the old, you know, the economists talk about the $20 bill on the sidewalk, right? You, you can't find it because somebody else would have picked it up. Um, so I don't think you should take advice from people like Michael Moritz. Um, it's, you know, I, I, if my son shouldn't take, you know, batting advice from, uh, you know, Joe DiMaggio, it's not applicable to the level that he's at, Um you know, there is some stuff that's applicable, but generally, you're just not going to have the same results they have. Um, you should do the things that you you can actually do, where you can actually add value. And, and I think the thing where um, people who are starting out can really add value is by knowing knowing a market extremely well, um, right? So when you when you talk about like what are the you know, the this, the old cliche about venture capital, there's what do you invest in? The people, market, products, and terms, or whatever it is, um, the the things that venture capitalists look for in a deal. Um, and uh, you, you need to know the market, right? That's the thing that you can really know. And you need to know the people. Um, you, the last thing you should do is invest in products. And, uh, and I think this is what a lot of people who start out in venture capital or, or in angel investing do is they look at a product and they say, this is an awesome product, right? I love this product. Um, I'm going to use this product. Everybody's going to use this product. Um, but, I mean, you know this, right? You've, you've been doing this as long as I have. It's if, if the, the company, the product the company has is almost never the same product at the end as it was at the beginning, right? I mean, you know, I, there's people in New York who invested in Pinterest, right? And they're like, oh, Pinterest, is, it was a great deal. But the product at the beginning wasn't, they didn't invest in what Pinterest became. They invested in something else. And, you know, so if, if they were intentionally successful, it's because they invested in the right people and the right market. Um, you know, Uber is not the company it was when it, that was, you know, pitched uh, at the seed stage. You know, they were... They're doing something different, um, and you know. The, yes, they are providing access to t- uh, people to drive you around, um, but their success is primarily in providing more people to drive you around that weren't in the market. Um, at the beginning, what they were providing was a way to access the existing cars already in the market. Um, so the, the product itself has changed. Um, to say that you invested in the right product at the beginning, it, it's just the wrong way to look at it. You invested in the right people. You invested in a market that needed to be changed. So if you understand the market and the problems that market has, you're going to be a much more successful investor. Um, and one way to really understand the market that you're investing in is to invest in a lot of companies in that market, right? So um, not necessarily competitors, right? I mean, you, you, I think it's personally, I don't think you should invest in companies that directly compete with each other. Um, it's, uh, I did that back at Omnicom and it was you know, nothing but trouble. Um, but, but if you invest in companies that are addressing the same market, um, you will learn so much more about that market from these companies being in market um, that you'll be able to continue to invest uh, in that market successfully. Um, and for me, it was the ad tech market early on where at Root Markets, we knew a lot of the ad tech people. Um, so I knew that market really well. I knew what was happening. I had a view about where it was going to go. Um, or actually, I shouldn't say I had a view. I had 10 different views about where it might Right. It could it could go in any way, but I knew the market needed to change. I knew that buying media over the telephone was, you know, uh, that that had to change. Um, 
and so buying it through the internet made a much you know or over a network and electronically made a lot more sense. Um, didn't really have an idea about how it would end up, so I invested in about ten companies, um, and uh, you know, one of them just went public a few weeks ago, and it was a, you know a, a great return. Um, some of the other ones didn't make it, uh, but you know I think it was I, I was making good bets um, because I knew the problems that the, the customers had because the companies that I had invested in would tell me about what their customers said to their salespeople about problems they had. Um, it, it, you know, this also helped me get into the uh, big data machine learning afterwards because the companies that I had invested in were using those technologies pretty heavily. So they could say like, oh, this, this startup is producing something that's really excellent. Um, so I think that information flow, um, you know, we talked about information networks and information flow. That information flow was really valuable to me. Um, and I think that's what you need to create as an angel investor. You need to create an information flow that is proprietary. Thanks for listening to part one with Jerry Newman. We'll be back next week with part two. Show you around, give you a taste of business, you know?